0: Good evening, good to see everyone tonight, hope we're all doing well, Brother uh, Leo asked me what I was going to be preaching on, and I said uh, God and the Bible, (laughs) we'll try to narrow it down a little bit as we go, Uh, you can take your Bible to, uh, let's see, go to Matthew 11, possibly Luke 17. Anybody ever have any ups and downs in life, even in the Christian life? Yeah, sometimes. I, I like a little saying I shared with my Sunday school class. I don't know when somebody in my family shared it with me a few weeks back about uh, some days I amaze myself and other days I leave my keys in the refrigerator. And, and sometimes life just feels like, it's like, how did I go from one end to the other? And uh, it reminds me of that There's a little phrase over there in Isaiah chapter 1, I don't know, around verse 15 or something. It's like the end of one verse and the beginning of the next. It says, cease to do evil, learn to do well. And I think of that as sort of the, the short and the long of the Christian life. You know, you get saved, and generally, cutting out the bad stuff is a quicker process. I mean, maybe not always, but... You know, you quit the cussing and drinking and smoking and chewing and run with them that doing and however all those little sayings go, right? That stuff, you kind of know, this is wrong, I just need to stop doing it. But then there's the learning to do well part that generally takes a little more effort. I don't know, is that, I don't know it might resonate with somebody. Uh, I, I think that's the case. And sometimes it's, sometime, it's that, that long game that if we're not careful, we'll, we'll sort of wear us down. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, uh, recruiting posters and stuff for the military. And it's, it's always some super, you know, square-jawed, physically fit, perfectly pressed uniform. Or they'll have some video playing of, of the most exciting and adventurous things that you get to do in the military. And that's what people want. But to get that, you don't just show someone the picture, Right? It doesn't work like that. That's where they send you to boot camp, and that's where all of the ugly and the daily drudgery and all that happens, because you have to take that person and turn them into something. The decision to want that happens pretty quickly. The process of becoming that is a different story, okay? You want to make a sword out of a lump of iron, you can't just show it a picture of a nice sword, right? You've got to heat it and beat it and mold it and all that kind of stuff to get it there, and... I think that's sometimes the long game of the Christian life, that that's why we get some of those days where, ah, I'm amazing, and oh, why are my keys in the refrigerator? Um, And you can get disappointed, to be sure, uh, to be sure. Uh, Some of you were here, I know many were not, on our uh, New Year's Eve service. In fact, go real quick to to Luke 17, Uh, I'm not going to re-preach this by any means, But this is a little bit, I guess you might say, of a a springboard into what we'll talk about here for a few minutes. In Luke 17, this passage, it starts off in verse 1. Jesus said unto the disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. And we talked just briefly about offenses. And there is certainly no getting around them. You, You will run into offense in the Christian life. You'll run into offense in life in general. Offending people and being offended come easy. It's the mending of those relationships. It's the reconciliation that's difficult. That's the long game, right? That's the difficult part. And I just pointed out quickly that in these first 10 verses here in Luke 17, he talks about offense in verse 1 and 2. And then he goes through what might seem like four sort of disjointed teachings. But I think the other three, that uh, in verses three and four, he talks about forgiveness. Well, if you've ever been offended or you know much about offense, you'll know that some forgiveness is going to be required if you're going to mend that relationship. But we don't always like to forgive. Sometimes we like to almost hold back a little bit or hold it like we have some sort of an ace in our pocket that we can play later on, hold it over people. But Jesus said, if your brother offends you seven times in a day and comes back for repentance, then you're to forgive him every time. That's probably why the third thing he talks about in verses 5 and 6 is faith. Because when the Lord tells you that you need to forgive at that level, you might be inclined also, like the apostles, to say, Lord, increase our faith, (laughs) because I don't know how I'm going to do that. I have, a, I have trouble forgiving somebody the first time they offend me. And you want me to do it seven times in a day? It's going to take some faith. And then he ends in verses 6 through 10, talking about the attitude of a servant. See, a servant doesn't think high of himself. He understands the position that he is in. He's not proud. He's not high-minded. And I think all those things go together. They serve us as a way to understand what it takes to live an offense-free life. Matthew 11, I don't know if I gave you that already, but you can turn over there. A life free of offense. <clears throat> it's a difficult thing, but it's a glorious thing. We Sometimes I think it... In our preaching we sometimes preach like from the result we want kind of like that recruiting poster I'm talking about and it's so easy to point out faults or how someone needs to be doing something better it's as if we're, we're taking someone who's a, a complete brand new not even a recruit yet and when, when he does something wrong we just point at that picture of the perfect soldier or sailor or whatever and say well, just be like him you're doing it wrong Just just be like that guy do the right thing without the instruction of how does a person get there? Well, you should stop being offended. That's true. I mean, it's plain from the scripture. But how do you stop being offended? What are the, what are the steps, if you will? And I don't just mean here, give me 10 check boxes. But I think that's why Jesus is teaching the way he does in Luke 17. He's saying, look, it's impossible. Offenses are going to come. And this is how you live above being offended all the time. It takes forgiveness. It takes faith. It takes keeping a servant attitude. In Matthew chapter 11, we have John the Baptist who's in prison. Uh, In verse 1 there, it says, It came to pass when Jesus made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John... Had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? That's interesting, isn't it? This is John the Baptist who's doing this. If you know much about the, the story, you might be tempted to think, as I'm sure I was the first time I read it, well, how, why is he asking that question? Certainly, John the Baptist knows who Jesus is. Well, I don't know. I mean, God wrote this, not me. And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. Now remember, John spent a long ministry of preaching to people, many of whom didn't want to hear what he had to say, directing people to the Messiah who would one day come, who he said, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoes. But now he's sitting in a prison cell. And, and maybe some disappointment has crept into it. Maybe that's not how he expected this thing was going to end. You know, these people in the Bible are human beings just like us. And it is easy to lose sight of that. Some of the stories are pretty fantastic, very strange to what we would consider everyday life. And it's easy to start thinking, well, surely they were very much different than us. someone like John the Baptist. He never would have doubted Jesus. Well, I don't know. He's sitting in a prison cell and he sends two of his disciples and says, go ask Jesus, is he the one or should we be looking for somebody else? Now, I've heard people say, well, he just did that so that the two messengers he sent would ask the questions and they would be convinced. I'm like, well, I don't think that's what how this reads. Jesus says in verse four. Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor of the gospel preach to them. And then notice verse 6, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. What a strange way to end that list of things. And to someone like John the Baptist, no doubt. You know, sometimes I think people get discouraged. They get disappointed or, frankly, offended at God because things have not worked out the way they think they should have worked out. Well, I did all the stuff that they told me to do, but, you know, life just hasn't fallen in place for me like I thought it would. I, I prayed that God would heal me, and he didn't do it. Blessed is he who's not offended in me say, well, certainly a man of God like that, uh, how could a prophet, someone like John the Baptist, ever be offended or disappointed in God? It happens. Elijah was one of the most mighty prophets in the Old Testament. And, I mean, within moments of literally calling down fire from heaven and winning a battle, an open battle against the enemies of God, he turned right around and went into despair. I mean, I don't know how else to account for it. Don't tell me it can't happen, even amongst God's people. And we are certainly not immune. You know, God is not obliged to our agenda. And I think that's why a lot of people end up disillusioned or disappointed in their Christian life. They have an agenda, and God's not on board with it. And they're not going to let go of it. And disappointment comes, our expectations go unmet. it turns into disillusionment and eventually bitterness, and bitterness causes people to walk away from the faith, to shipwreck their faith. They become bitter against God. Disappointment can also lead to the perception of injustice. Well, how come that person's so happy? They seem like you know they're just following Jesus and everything's great and Here I am off the sidelines, or I just find religion or God boring. Why is that, Lord? I thought you were going to fulfill my life, and everything was going to be great. Well, you apparently have a different plan than God does. The Bible indicates that there is no unfaithfulness in God. God is always faithful, and he's always true to his word. So when we're disappointed with God... I can think of three reasons. We have either misunderstood what God has promised, misunderstood what he's taught us, or we've, we're impatient and God simply has not fulfilled what he's said yet, or we are not doing our part. Go over to John chapter 11. John 11. <clears> That's <throat> another fairly familiar story. This is the death of Lazarus and Jesus has, is coming to town and uh, his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent, send unto Jesus there in verse 3, saying, Lord, behold, him; who, he whom thou lovest is sick. Verse 4, says John 11. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So Jesus says, I have a purpose, and I'm telling you this sickness is not unto death. Well, you go down through this chapter, Jesus uh, arrives at their location. Uh, You look at verse 21. Then said Martha, who went out to meet the Lord Jesus first, unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, they'd heard word back. Jesus had told them, this sickness isn't unto death. And now Martha comes out and meets the Lord as he comes to town and says, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Verse 24, Martha, and well, Jesus tells her in verse 23, thy brother shall rise again. And Martha says unto him in verse 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She goes, Yeah, you know, Lord, I know what you're talking about. Sure, eventually we're all going to rise again. I get that. But see, my expectation was that he wasn't going to die in the first place because you said this sickness wasn't unto death. So did Jesus just not keep his word? Go down to verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So both of them got a word from the Lord, but apparently their anticipation, their expectation was that Lazarus wasn't going to die from this sickness. You see how, that, how easily that can happen, that our perception of some promise of God gets out of alignment with what God actually meant? Verse 39. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead for four days. Hey, it's too late. You missed your chance, he's gone now. Snooze, you lose. I mean, I don't know how else you want to portray it. But look at verse 40. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, Thou shouldest see the glory of God. And then what happens? Jesus calls Lazarus forth. And I don't know, you know, again, the attack of flannel graph. I picture him, you know, boom, he's suddenly standing there in clean white clothes and looks great. You know, tie is all done up correctly and everything in case he gets called on to sing or something. But... The Bible says he comes out in his grave clothes, face covered and everything. He looked way more like a zombie than he did a Baptist preacher when he came out of that grave. Probably would have been a little frightening. Amen. But Jesus said, you see, I gave you a promise, and I'm always good to my word. Amen. But it didn't get fulfilled the way you thought it was going to be fulfilled. And so some disappointment set in for Mary and Martha. God hadn't come through for them the way they expected he would. But he did come through because he always comes through. He's always true to his word. When we misunderstand what God has promised, there is occasion for our faith to be wounded if not destroyed. I think of the, the word of faith, a healing movement that many of you I'm sure are familiar with. What, what a sham on the word of God. A misrepresentation of who God is and how he works and how many people have had their perception of God ruined by that falsehood. Christian, what promise has God made to you that he hasn't fulfilled? On what grounds do we base our disappointment or offense toward him? Find the root of that. And you get in this book and you find out if you're holding on to something that you just thought he said or that someone told you he said, or is it what he actually said that we're holding on to? Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred, maketh the heart sick. Sometimes it's just a matter of patience, isn't it? I mean, we're all hoping, aren't we? I- I'm ready to go home right now. I don't have to finish this message. If God wants to come back and get us. It won't bother me one bit. And we've had that hope, but you realize generations of bloodwashed believers have gone before us that have had that same hope. Living in, in anticipation of that day, thinking it might come, hearing it preached about, and yet they're off with the Lord now. It didn't come in their day. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire cometh, amen, it's a tree of life. Of course, we live in the day of the religion of me in many respects. Now, selfishness has been a sin since the Garden of Eden. But we live in the day of, you know, instant gratification, it seems, in every regard, whether it's, you know, Internet and FedEx and same-day delivery and all the rest. It's just now, 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 I want, want, want. I don't want to wait for anything, any amount of time. You know, if I don't have cell coverage, I'm immediately, you know, disrupted. It's just such a foreign concept. We expect everything revolves around that. You can't expect me to stay in a relationship that doesn't excite me. Well, I don't know. We call it self-esteem and self-love or whatever sort of therapeutic sounding thing we can call it. So it seems like it's something that was prescribed or it's healthy for you. You have a God-shaped hole in you and only God can fill. God would have come and died even if it was just for you. Well, those things all sound good. They're not in the Bible. Now, sometimes I think people are trying to portray a legitimate truth by using some of those. But those and a thousand other sentiments have built megachurches of lukewarm Christians, if Christians at all. Jeremiah put it this way in chapter 2 and verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me? He says, I challenge you, you. Or anyone you know, essentially, ask your fathers if anyone's ever found iniquity in me. You won't find it. Right. You won't find it. I was talking with a group the other day, and this one girl, young lady, she said, Well, I just couldn't be a Christian because I don't, you know, Christianity holds back women and it's oppressive towards women, and I wouldn't be able to see the realization of all my gifts and my goals and desires. And I just said, Well, you're right. And Christianity isn't for you. Say <laughs> what? Well, you're not allowed to tell people that? Now, of course, she needs Christianity. She needs Christ. No one debates that. But the problem is, you don't come make a contract with God Amen. as to how you'll, you'll allow him to save you. God's not in trouble. We're in trouble. God doesn't need anything. He's not a beggar. We are beggars. Amen. He's looking for people that are willing to take up a cross and follow him. Not say, well, God, if you'll meet my terms, I'll sign. I'll give you a shot and see how this works. I mean, I've tried alcohol and I've tried drugs and traveling the world and surfing and I don't know, whatever else. Throw anything in there you want. Sure, I'll try God too. And you've probably heard that saying. Try Jesus. If you don't like him, the devil will always take you back. Now, that's a cute saying. I think I know what some people mean when they're saying it, but you know what? You don't just try, Jesus. That's not how it works. Not how it works. God is not to be trifled with. You don't just give him a shot. If anything, we could liken it maybe to a marriage. You either commit for life up front with all those unknowns out there, or you get nothing. That's the only way the arrangement can work. It's the only way that it can at least properly be entered into. You commit to the whole thing up front. Now, people will play at it. They'll try to take, you know, this and that benefits of marriage without an actual marriage. But that doesn't work. You can say, well, I know somebody that's doing it and they seem to be happy. You know how I can tell you that it doesn't work? Because God says in Galatians 6 that he is not mocked. God created marriage, God created the family, and the only way it works correctly is God's way. You don't just pick and choose the things from God that you want, jumble it together and say, I just, you know, I'm living in bliss. Sure, there are moments of, you know, sin is pleasurable for a season. We all get that. But God is not mocked. God is not mocked. You don't just try God. You don't trifle with him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Seems like there's a little something more to that than just praying a little prayer. Go over to Proverbs chapter 2 quickly. Proverbs 2. Of course, we can't see into a person's heart. Sometimes we're quick to give assurance about certain things, maybe too quick. Sure, we we want to see people blessed. We want to see them comfortable in their faith, but Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 says, My son, if thou will receive my words and hide my commandments with thee. Now, notice this, verse 2. So that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures. It's the first word of verse 5. Then. You can just put little brackets around verses 1 through 4 with an arrow to verse 5. Then. Then you have these things. Now, I know this isn't talking about a, a gospel witness proper per se, but this is one of many scriptures that we could look at that talk about the right heart attitude with which somebody comes to God. And it's not just, uh, well, I've tried everything else. I think I'll try Jesus too. You will search the scriptures in vain to, tr- to find that. We're told to seek him with the whole heart. 1 John five ten: He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Romans 8.16 says the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If there's no witness going on in here, if your spirit is not being attested to by the spirit of God, then according to the scriptures, you're not his child. You say, well, yeah, but I came for it. Yeah, but I did it. Yeah, but I got in the baptismal waters. Yeah, but somebody told me I was and they showed me a verse. I'm just saying, the Bible says if there is not the witness of God bearing testimony with your spirit that you are his child, then you're not his child. doesn't mean you won't go through the seasons of doubt. It doesn't mean you're, you know, walking on cloud nine. Jesus said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Will you go without food or water for a little while? Some of you probably have, whether it be a, a fast on purpose, or maybe you were just in a circumstance where you didn't have either. It doesn't take long, and pretty soon, that's all you can think about. I've only ever gone, I think, maybe three days without food, but I went one time over 24 hours without water, and I couldn't concentrate on anything but how we were going to get water. Now, many have gone far longer than that, I'd be ashamed to say, but I have some idea of what being genuinely thirsty is like. God said, people who thirst and hunger after me, they're going to be blessed. They're going to be blessed. The world offers many alternatives, most of them having a much more a quicker sense of gratification. But to the one who is God's child, there's no legitimate alternatives. When some of the disciples left, Jesus said to Simon Peter, are you going to go away also? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. See, I've got a thirst for this that nothing else satisfies. This is the only thing that can slake that thirst, that can quench that hunger. Psalmist said, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We need strength from the Lord. Writing to the Church of Philadelphia, he tells them that they have little strength, but he doesn't scold them for that. But he does say, O ye of little faith. So you can't just decide how much strength you have. You might pray to get more, but you can exercise faith. You can choose to trust God through that discouragement. Ephesians 6 says, above all, taking the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Disappointment, offense in God can come because we misunderstand God's promises. It can come because we're not patient in waiting on God's promises. And sometimes it can come because we just don't ask. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and we're going to close. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I I've been, had cause to wonder this a few times here recently. You know, discouragement comes, it starts to set in and you find yourself after a whole bunch of hand-wringing and sweating and everything else and asking questions. God just spoke to me and said, you know what? Did, did you even ask for help with that? You, you say you want this, but did, have you ever even asked me for it? God loves his children. He delights to give them the things they ask for if they're asked in his will. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29 says, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Look at verse 32. He says, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven unto the other, whether there hath been any such things as this great thing is, or hath been heard like it. And God's saying, is, he's talking about the nation of Israel. Has God ever worked through a people like this? Has God ever done the great things that you've seen him do? He says, ask. Ask anyone you know. Ask people all the way back to the creation of the world. Ask from one end of heaven to the other, and you'll find it so. Ask him. Ask him. Abraham asked God for a city. Moses asked to see God. Now, God said, I can only show you my hinder parts, but that's still a pretty tall order. (laughs) I think we can agree. Caleb asked for a mountain. Peter asked to walk on water. One woman asked just for the crumbs that fell from the master's table. A blind man asked Jesus for mercy and had his sight restored. A woman of the well asked for living water, and she received it. Ask, is anything too hard for God? There's an interesting verse, we'll get up sometime in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 11. God says, concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. And it's not a question. Now, God's not some sort of a puppet that we pull with strings, but the very thought that God would even entertain us commanding the work of his hands is an amazing thought. You may know this song. I don't know. I I think Mark Rogers sings it. It's called Just Ask, and I'll read it for you as we close. He says, Alone in the darkness, you're wondering, is Jesus still listening to me? Is he truly aware of my suffering, and is this the way it always will be? My friend, I know the answer to your question, but don't trust my opinion alone. You should ask the host of others, sisters and brothers who've been there and their stories live on. I too have stood in the darkness, not wanting to walk one more mile, my mind filled with unanswered questions, hiding tears behind every smile. But then I drew strength from those pilgrims, the ones who were the first to believe. When their faith reached out to touch him, His arms reached back to help them. And he's able to do the same for you and me. Just ask the woman at the well, the thief on the cross, the lame man who's walking, the dumb who tell it all. Ask the beggars and lepers who've been touched by his hand. Can he handle an impossible task? They'll know the answer. Just ask. Just ask. Brethren, I don't want to see any of us discouraged, or offended in our Lord. And the Bible gives us some plain and clear instruction on how we can avoid those things. And I pray we might take them to heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the scriptures tonight without which we would be lost and undone. Thank you that you loved us. Thank you that you gave us the church. Thank you for our pastor and for the ministries that we have here, for our love one for another and for the fellowship we can share amongst brethren thank you for our time tonight, for each one that's here, and for the kind attention of your people. I pray that uh, you would have your will and way, that you would uh, give us each what we need tonight. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you the honor and glory that's due to you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.